So last week we had a congregational meeting after the service, and so because of that, we tried to keep things a little tighter uh, because the we are we are guests in another church's building, and they worship here at ten thirty on Sundays, and so. Uh, so I combined the sermon and the celebration of baptism together to sort of talk about what baptism is and, and how we understand baptism as it's explained in Scripture from a Reformed perspective. Uh, and so today we have again another congregational meeting just to give you an update on where we stand with the owners of this building, uh, but also it's another Sacrament Sunday. So... I thought that this Sunday we would do much like we did last Sunday and uh, look to Scripture to understand the Lord's Supper, the second sacrament instituted by our Lord Jesus. Uh, there are two sacraments uh, that we understand uh, given to us, commanded by Christ himself, baptism after his resurrection and just prior to his ascension, he commanded that we baptize as we make disciples. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first sacrament he mentions, though, is not after his resurrection, but the day before, the night before his death. On the very night that he will be betrayed, he celebrates what is the first communion, or what we call often the Last Supper. And in doing that, it is not coincidence that he uses a supper that is already in place for the people of God. And he takes this old covenant meal and he takes the elements of that meal and he simplifies it and he expands on it so that people, so that followers of Christ will understand that Jesus is the Passover lamb. So, uh, as was probably strange to you last week to talk about baptism, we read from Genesis. To talk about the Lord's Supper, we'll read from Exodus. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is in Exodus chapter 12, and this is the institution of Passover. The first 20 verses, Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest, nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. 
Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. And so it's no secret to you, if you've been here regularly, that uh, a writer frequently quoted from this pulpit, ironically, uh, a very devout Catholic, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and uh, in an interview with him, he explained that um, Lambus bread was his attempt at conveying the strengthening uh, power of communion. So if you remember Lambus bread, the little bread that the elves, yeah, the elves gave the hobbits and the whole fellowship and you only needed a little piece, and it would be enough to sustain you. Like, for weeks on end, it would be enough. And you remember, like, uh, Mary and Pippin, they eat, like, three loaves of it before they learn that. And they're, well, they feel quite full. But it was, it was Tolkien's attempt to sort of capture, uh, ironically, the guy who despises allegory, uh, but to capture the essence of, of communion. 
Now, there's other things in Tolkien also that I had written a bunch of them down and then realized this morning they have nothing to do with communion. They were just cool things that I noticed. And so we're just going to put all those away, and uh, we can talk about it. But the dates in the... Anyway, they're just... It's cool stuff going on that, that he does very intentionally. But it's... it's um, and in fact, what, what I do want to do, rather than quote Tolkien, is uh, go to Luke. So in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7, this is what Luke tells us about the night Jesus is betrayed. He says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And then in describing the dinner, we're told, When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so we see Jesus at his last Passover meal, celebrating Passover and saying to his disciples that he's been very eager and anxious about this particular Passover meal. It's, been, it's a very important meal to him. And so it tells us that it's the day that the Passover lamb is to be prepared. And isn't it interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all who record for us details of the Lord's Supper, or of that Last Supper, and even John, who records even more details of what's taught during that last supper. In fact, from, from John 13 through John 17 is all being communicated and instructed at that supper and from that supper on the way to the garden. And so, so John records so much of what's going on, and yet none of them say anything about the lamb they had for supper. And they were devout Jews. Luke tells us it's the day that the Passover lamb is going to be sacrificed for all the nation. So a lamb was present, but the authors intentionally say nothing about the lamb on the table because your focus is to be drawn to the lamb at the table. The lamb overseeing the meal, not the lamb who was the meal. And so 
He then takes pieces of that meal, the bread, the wine, and he gives them new meaning. But you have to go all the way back to Passover to kind of capture why it's so significant. The Passover meal, the first Passover meal, was a meal that included with it this activity of taking the blood of a lamb and smearing it on the frame of the door and everyone staying inside the house all night. And after dinner, through during the night, the angel of the Lord came to Egypt and struck down the firstborn of every the firstborn male of all living creatures in Egypt. We're told both man and beast, unless you were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. If your household had the blood of the lamb over its doorway, that angel in his judgment passed over your house. That's why the language of Passover, the judgment of God... The wrath of God passed over the people because they were covered by the blood of this lamb. In Exodus 13, God goes on to describe how significant this is. In fact, he says, uh, because of this, every firstborn male belongs to me. Every firstborn male belongs to me. You have a firstborn lamb, that's mine. You sacrifice that lamb. You have a firstborn goat, that's mine. You sacrifice that goat to me. You have a firstborn donkey, you have a choice. You can either break the donkey's neck because it belongs to me, or you can redeem the donkey. You can offer a sacrifice in the donkey's place. You have a firstborn son, you don't have a choice. You may not break his neck, though you may feel like it years later. But the firstborn son, you redeem. Like literally, he says, you redeem your firstborn son with a lamb. And your kids will one day ask you, why do we do this? Why does every firstborn animal go to God? Why does every firstborn son re require a sacrifice? He says, and when they ask, you tell them, because you were once slaves in Egypt and by the blood of the firstborn of Egypt, I redeemed you. I purchased you. I brought you out of that land. And, and twice in the description in, in Exodus 13 is the, your children will ask, why do we do this? And every time he says, because the Lord redeemed us. Because we were once slaves and the Lord saved us. The Lord redeemed us. The Passover meal is a, is a celebration, but it's a celebration that includes sorrow. You notice that he said, eat this with the unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. The celebration was both, was both joyful and sorrowful because it recalled the bitterness of slavery, the bitterness of what their lives were like. The bitterness of those they had lost. I mean, there were, think about 400 years of slavery. 
This means that some of God's people, their entire calling, their lot in life was to be born as a slave, grow up as a slave, have children who would be slaves, and then die as a slave. And so there's great bitterness in recalling this, and yet the realization that God saved us from that. We've been saved out of that. God redeemed us from our lives of bondage. And so the meal is this celebration meal. We all love, well, I mean, we're American, but we all love eating, don't we? And the only thing better than eating is eating with friends. Like being invited, it's it's exciting to be invited to someone's house for a meal. Uh, The progressive dinner that we have here, which isn't a political dinner, by the way. Uh, It's just, we're just going to move from house to house. It it has nothing to do with how we vote. Uh, But our progressive dinner is, it's a great delight. It's a great joy because it's fun to come together in community and to to share and break bread and and share fellowship. I'm reading, well, I'm rereading The Count of Monte Cristo, which I do almost as regularly as a fellowship, but... In the, in the Count of Monte Cristo, and I don't want to give too much of it away, but it's a whole story about revenge, and it's really... But anyway, the family that he has the most anger toward, like they have, the, they throw this big summer ball, and he goes to the ball, and the mother notices that he won't eat anything offered at the ball. He won't even take ice offered because it's so hot at this summer ball. And the mother realizes that he has something against their household because he won't break bread with them. He won't, if he's going to come under their roof, he will not receive any sustenance, any nourishment, any bread from them because that's a sign of friendship. That's a sign of, of being together. When we break bread together, it's a sign of, of, of familial love. And so when we come to the table, it's a, it's a family meal. That's why uh, Passover, he said, you have to be circumcised. You have to, you have, to have received the sign that you're part of the family to take part in the family meal. Uh, and so, uh, likewise, communion. We say you, you have to be a baptized believer, a baptized member of a, of a church. You have, to, you have to have admitted that you're part of the family. Now, when, we, when you are invited to people's homes for dinner, there's a lot of like kind of natural questions that come up. Like maybe you're invited to someone's home, maybe you're invited to an event, but it's a meal that you're invited to. And this is where I realize this is going to be um, dangerous, but because I'm going to ask for some class participation here. What are some questions that naturally come to mind when you're invited somewhere for dinner? 
What's for dinner? What should I bring? Okay, what time? Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, where's the toy room? I am with you on that. Yeah, totally important question there. I agree. Oh, yeah, allergies. Sure, sure. Yeah, what's for dinner? That's a big one. Yeah, what's for dinner? You know, when we come to communion, we ask, and it's sort of the million-dollar question, isn't it? What are we eating? Uh, some of our uh, some of our believing brothers and sisters would say, we're not really eating anything. And we're eating some stale crackers and some grape juice, and it helps us remember. Which I, just, I don't know how that does, but it's, it's nothing. It's, it's not anything. It's crackers, it's grape juice, and we just remember things that happened 2,000 years ago. Because crackers and grape juice do that. They bring about millennial-type memories. Other... Others of our brothers and sisters would say, well, we're eating Jesus' body and we're drinking Jesus' blood. That there's some, something that happens to the very elements, the, the bread actually changes and becomes Jesus's body. The, the wine changes and becomes Jesus's blood. And we're actually uh, taking those in physically. Um, as with most things in the Reformed world, uh, then there's the correct way, <laughs> which is that it's more than just a memorial kind of unsatisfying snack time. But it's not Jesus' physical body and blood. But we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, or I'm sorry, in is it 10? 11. So this is before the institution that we usually read, but we've already read it from, from uh, Luke. But as, as Paul explains to them why he's about to give them, re-give them the instructions on the Lord's Supper, he says, listen, I can't commend you about your communion practices. And he says, this is why. You come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. In the first place, you come together as a church, I hear that there's all sorts of divisions among you. And I have to believe it in part, for there's, there must be factions among you, just so that there will be some who are genuine. But when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have houses at home to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So, they come together, they're eating this communion meal together, and somehow Paul says, that's not, that's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. Because you're not doing it by faith. Like it's, some of you are eating all the bread before anyone gets any, and so then the hungry don't get any. Some of you are getting drunk on the wine. Like he says, this is, that's not the Lord's Supper. What you're doing there, it's not the Lord's Supper. So that means that there's something that happens at the Lord's Supper 
not in the elements, but in our hearts. When you partake of these things by faith, Christ is present. He feeds and nourishes you through the very act of, of these things that these day, these common activities, eating, drinking, and Christ feeds us by faith. Now it's a mystery. It's a mystery. There's nothing wrong with admitting it's a mystery. Now mystery in it's it's not the only mystery though of Christianity. I mean, there are plenty of things in Christianity that... Now, there's some mysteries that are mysteries because we don't understand what's being said. But some things are mysteries because they're very straightforward. It's just hard to comprehend. Uh, The eternal, immortal God died. Like That's not mysterious because the words are hard to understand. It's mysterious because... If you think about it, it starts to get a little odd that the eternal, immortal God, the unchangeable God died for you, for your sin. The the perfect son of righteousness took on your sin. He became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. It's a mystery not because it's hard to understand hard to understand the words but because the idea of it is is mysterious how god works that out when we come by faith to the table christ promises to be present and to feed us he uses these very simple images and activities to then feed our souls in the same way that you feed your body and you're strengthened. Strengthened for facing difficulties, strengthened for doing work that you've been called to. As food does that for us, Christ does that for us. At communion, he, he comes and he strengthens us for, for facing temptation and sin. He, he strengthens us for the work that he's called us to do. So what are we eating? Well, by faith, we are feeding on Christ. What else did we ask? Who else asked? I don't know where the toy room is. I'm going to have to just admit that. Um, Sometimes we ask, you know, what can I bring? Do you ever ask that? You're invited over someone's house. You say, well, what can I bring? Can I bring anything? And the beauty of this table is uh, nothing. You bring nothing. You don't even bring your commitment to be more worthy of this table next time. You come, uh, actually it might even be worse than that. You don't just bring nothing, you bring your sin. Uh, the, the original title of the song we sang, Rock of Ages, uh, and you can see why we don't use original titles for some of these things, a living and dying prayer for the holiest believer in the world. That was Top Lady's original title for that hymn. 
a living and dying prayer for the holiest believer in the world. Because think about it. The holiest believer in the world still needs to know nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I'll die. And although we arrive foul and naked at this table, we don't eat in this state. For the Lord washes us. The Lord cleanses us. In fact, the Lord clothes us. You know, we see the, the imagery of it at John 13. Though, though John doesn't record the activities of the eating at the table... Before they ate, we're told what Christ has to do. He looks around the table. He gets up quietly, wraps a towel around his waist, and washes his disciples' feet. He makes them clean. They don't arrive clean. They arrive filthy. And he washes them. In the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, you know, the guests that are finally invited are the, you know, the, the riffraff, the, the ruffians, the, the vagabonds, the, the street urchins, the, the bums and the prostitutes because no one else is willing to come. They're all too busy. And so, so the, the, the host says, well, just invite everyone and bring them in. And when they arrive, he clothes them. He provides the garments for the wedding for them to wear. You know, sometimes you're invited to dinner and you ask, uh, you know, who, who else is invited? Uh, I mean, we don't always necessarily ask in the, so I know whether I want to say no thank you, but you're just curious, you know, how many other people are coming? Who else is invited? And, and it is sinners Saved by grace. It's amazing that the first Lord's Supper was the last Lord's Supper that someone who didn't need the supper ate it. Jesus, the only person who didn't need the supper, he serves, he partakes. And from that moment on, including all of the guests then, the supper has been for sinners. Only for sinners. For sinners who've been saved by grace. For sinners who are just overwhelmed with the idea that I've been reconciled to God. It's why we focus, when we focus on our time of prayer and confession at, at the Lord's Supper, on our... Do you have something against your brother or your sister? We're about to celebrate that you are reconciled to the holy, perfect, and righteous God. How do we celebrate that and cling to not being reconciled with each other? No, we, we confess, we repent. 
You know, maybe if you have the the opportunity, if that person's here in the room, you, you say, hey, I've been holding this against you. And if not, you, you determine in your heart, before the sun goes down today, I will, I will pursue reconciliation because Christ pursued reconciliation for me. I love uh, that Luke alone, but Luke, you know, probably you've noticed that Luke mentions two glasses of wine. He's like, well, that's kind of weird. So there's wine, then bread, and then wine. And why don't we do that? Maybe we should do that more often. But there's actually four glasses of wine at a traditional Passover. And it comes from Exodus chapter 6. God says, this is him announcing that he's going to deliver his people. He says in Exodus 6, 6, he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God And you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. The four promises of deliverance are the four foci of the glasses of wine. The first glass of wine at Passover is uh, the... It's the, the glass of sanctification or separation. I will bring you out. I'm going to bring you out of that bondage. Church in Greek, the the New Testament word for church is ekklesia, the called out ones. I will bring you out of this bondage, of this darkness. The second cup, I will deliver you. It's the cup of salvation. I will save you. I'm going to deliver you. It's the cup that's mentioned in the first cup mentioned in Luke. The second cup mentioned in Luke, which is the third cup of Passover, is called the cup of redemption. I will redeem you. I will buy you back. The cup of redemption at the Passover meal is the cup Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This cup of redemption is the cup of the new covenant. And then finally, the cup of exception. I will take you as a nation. That promise, I will have you as my people and I will be your God. That covenantal promise, this fourfold promise of deliverance and salvation. The only thing left to even ask is, uh, I mean, well, how should we act? And we ask that. I mean, maybe we don't ask it out loud, but we want to know. It's like, is this a formal dinner? Is this an informal dinner? Like, you're going to act differently if you're invited to a wedding reception at a grand ballroom than you would if you're invited to a picnic uh, on the lawn. There's protocol. There's etiquette. How do I act? How should I act? Well, when we come to this dinner, 
And we realize not the labors of my hands could fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save. Just like the Passover meal, there's a a joyful sorrow. Joy that God has redeemed you. Sorrow over all that still needs redeeming. We come empty-handed, but with hearts full of love and gratitude. We come broken because a broken spirit and a contrite heart of God you will not despise. So let's pray. God, we thank you for this table, for your invitation that you have washed us, Jesus. You have clothed us. You became the curse for us in order to redeem us. We thank you for this meal in which we celebrate and remember and by which we are strengthened. Lord Jesus, would you feed us? As we prepare to come to the table, would you please open our eyes to our own hearts, search our hearts, grant that we might see our sin and repent Seek forgiveness from you. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation from one another. God, thank you for the gift of conviction of your spirit. But that by the conviction and discipline of your spirit, we are, we are saved and not condemned. Please hear us as we confess our sins silently to you.